Welcome to the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church, we seek to love God, love others, and make a difference. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Father, we come before you, Lord, and just, uh, Lord, you are holy and sovereign, merciful, gracious, good, faithful. Lord, as we come and dive into your word, Lord, I ask that you would speak in a powerful way, that you would move in only the way you can move. Lord, pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. You are my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. He will allow himself to be captured. He will allow himself to be spit on and mocked and beaten. He will allow himself to stand in front of a crowd with the other dude and listen as the crowd chants for the other dude. He will allow them to take that cat of nine tails, that whip with nine leather strands with metal, bone, and glass woven into it and allow them to whip him 39 times. And with each lashing, that bone, that metal, that glass would grab onto his body so that they would rip it from him until skin and muscle and tissue is ripped from bone until his insides have become his outsides. He'll allow them to take that crown of thorns and nail it to his head. He will voluntarily pick up that deathbed and walk up the mountain. And he will get to the top. And then he will allow them to take three-inch nails and begin to hammer it into his hands and his feet. And he'll allow them to prop him up and put him on display in all shame and humiliation. And he will allow all of this to happen, voluntarily dying on the cross. And he will do it knowing that there are people that day, and there'll be people for the rest of history that will choose not to believe in him. He goes to the cross knowing there will be people that don't believe or won't believe in him, that will choose not to believe, that he went to the cross to forgive their sins, that he went to the cross out of simple love for them, and that he's the only way for your sins to be forgiven. It is crazy to me to die a death like that knowing people will choose not to believe in it. And yet we find a passage today in Luke chapter 4 in his hometown where people are struggling to believe who he is. If you have your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. <laughs> and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? 
Notice the posture at the beginning of this. At the beginning, man, Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and then he makes that statement, Scripture fulfilled in your hearing. And the first thing is, is they are very excited about this. They are excited to hear this because for generations, the people of Israel have been waiting for their coming Messiah. And so for him to say today, the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing would excite every Jewish person because they're thinking, oh, our Savior is here, our Messiah is here. And then there's a small, subtle change in their posture. It's significant, but it's, it's a small change. It's in that question. Isn't this Joseph's son? Joseph, the carpenter, the dude that made our table, isn't that his son? There are other people that grew up with Jesus are like, that's the dude I used to play hide and seek with. That's the dude we played basketball with. Adults, other parents are sitting there going, that's the kid that used to spend the night at my house. Like, isn't that who we're talking about? You see, there's this struggle for them immediately of wondering, hold on, is this really our Messiah? Is this really our Savior? And many people struggle to believe in Jesus. And there's a number of reasons why. Right now, with the question of, isn't this Joseph's son, we see that for some people, they don't believe in Jesus because he seems too good to be true. Listen, Jesus reads that scroll from Isaiah. It comes out of Isaiah chapter 61. For every Jew in that synagogue, their minds would go back to Leviticus 25 because he says at the end of that, uh, end of that reading, that is the year of the Lord. That year of the Lord is the year of Jubilee, which we find in Leviticus 25. So every Jewish person would have went back to Leviticus 25. Here's what the year of Jubilee is. The year of Jubilee is kind of a resetting of everything in society for them. One thing that would happen is in the year of Jubilee or the year of the Lord, if you were a slave, you were set free. There's a number of reasons we find in Scripture for, them, for, for a, a Hebrew person to have another Hebrew slave. Okay, we find that in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 15 of some reasons why. One major reason why was to pay off your debt. So if I owed somebody uh, money or I had a debt to somebody, one way I can pay my debt off is to go be a slave. If I didn't have enough money to, to pay off my debt, I could go be a slave for them, work off my debt. If my debt is significant enough, I'd give them my land and become a slave. But here's the thing about the year of Jubilee. At the time, the horn will blow, letting everybody know it's the year of Jubilee. So that slave is set free. If that slave is married and has a family, the whole family is set free. Not only that, the land that they use to pay off their debt is given back to them. Not only that, it is the master's responsibility to bless the slave when they go back home and go back to their land. So not only do they get their land back that they use to pay off their debt, not only are they free, but now it's the master's job to give you grain so that you could harvest your own fields to give you livestock so you could take care of your family. So it's a way to say, listen, I know you were poor, I know you were weak, and I know you've been a slave, but now it's my opportunity to hopefully where you don't end up back like this. It's this amazing command by God in Leviticus 25, part of the Jewish law. And here's what it does. It makes sure the rich don't continue to dominate over the poor or the powerful don't continue to dominate over the weak. It's in that moment that you see the social classes start to mix back together. And not only are they set free, but now those who were powerful and rich send them out. The person that was a slave came in with nothing and is leaving with more. Even if they still had debt, your debt was erased. And so for the Jews to hear him read from Isaiah 61 to say this is the, the, the scriptures fulfilled in your hearing would be exciting for them. But they also thought it's too good to be true. Because here's the thing, the year of Jubilee, this year of the Lord, this command in Leviticus 25 is an amazing idea, epic idea, and a command by God, yet was rarely practiced in Jewish society. 
It's not a shock. Look throughout human history. We don't have lots of examples where the powerful are giving their power away back to the weak. We don't find a lot of examples in history where masters are freeing slaves and then sending the slaves out with stuff that is of the masters. It's usually not how it works. It's not very common practice. And so for them, it all felt too good to be true. And today, some still feel the gospel of Jesus Christ is too good to be true. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Seems too good to be true. It seems too good to be true because the Bible talks about this love that's hard to fathom. Hard to imagine that there's a father who loves me so much that he would send his son to die for me. That sounds too good to be true because I know how people who say they love me, how they've treated me. I've seen what love looks like in our world. Sounds a little impossible, this father in heaven that I can't really see, but he loves me so much that he would send his son to die for me. Like, that sounds too good to be true. Also sounds too good to be true because if you are self-aware at all, then you know some of the things about you in your own heart. Some of your thoughts and your actions, your words and things that you've done. And you're afraid and you know that there's nobody that would truly love you if they knew the real you. Sounds too good to be true, that if you knew the real part of me, it's what Jesus tells us about in Mark, Mark chapter 7, that for from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within. They defile a person. You see, I know what's inside of me, and I know my own thoughts and my own actions. I know what comes out of my own heart, and so I know the wickedness inside of me, and if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. So there's no way there's a Father in heaven who loves me so much that he sent his son to die for me because do you really know me? You see, for some people, the struggle isn't if Jesus was real. The struggle is with the character of Jesus because what I read about in Scripture and what I find at the, at the cross is a Jesus who shows a perfect love, perfect peace, grace, and mercy, and forgiveness. And I struggle with that. I don't struggle with whether Jesus was real or not because there's other texts outside of the Bible that say Jesus was real. There's other religions in the world that claim Jesus was a real man. No, I don't struggle with whether Jesus was a real person. I struggle with the character of Jesus. He seems too good to be true. For other people, they don't believe in Jesus because they don't think that they have the thought, I don't think I really need help. Look at the, the labels that are listed in verses 18 and 19. Poor, prisoner, blind, oppressed. The Jews in that synagogue did not want to accept these labels. They saw themselves as self-righteous. And of course they did. Look at where they're at. It is the Sabbath day. They are in the synagogue. They are worshiping and listening to the teaching. They are corporately gathered together. They observed all the ceremonies. They did all the rituals. They did all the outwardly righteous things that you're supposed to do in their law. So, of course, they don't think these labels pertain to them. They didn't want to accept them. They had a question about Jesus. We're the righteous ones. And if you claim to be the Messiah, but you can't distinguish the difference between the righteous and the wicked, then how could you even be the Messiah? See, they're confused because for them, they think Jesus is only talking about the physical things. That he's, not, he's talking about those who are actually economically poor, that those are physically in prison or physically blind, physically oppressed. They're thinking only in physical terms. But we find that Jesus is actually talking about physical and spiritual things. The, the Greek word that Luke uses for poor is patokis. It conveys the idea of a beggar cowering in shame. There's another word for poor in the Greek language that would be talking about a social class, those that are economically poor. That word is panes. 
Luke intentionally uses a different word, and that other word symbolizes both physical and spiritual. You see, in spiritual terms, the poor are those who recognize their moral bankruptcy. These people in the synagogue, they don't recognize that they're spiritually in poverty, their sinful bondage, their blindness, their oppression, that they needed a savior. They just didn't feel that they needed this savior. And some have the same confusion today. I have a life of comfort. I have a pretty good job. I can take care of my family. We have a roof over our head. We got food on the table. There's a lot of other people around the world that they're in poverty, that they're oppressed, that they're in bondage, they're in slavery. They need help. I don't really need help. Listen, I'm a, I'm a person of good moral character, and I work really hard, and I try to do my best to do the right things. Like, I don't really need help. And what they fail to realize is their spiritual state, blind to their spiritual state, blind to the fact that they're bankrupt in their soul, blind to the fact that they're sin and in bondage to or they're slaves and to sin. For other people, they don't believe in Jesus because they say, I've known Jesus my whole life. Look at these people. In verse 22, they say, hey, isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You see, those people had become very familiar with Jesus, too familiar with Jesus. He grew up in that town. They watched him grow up. They grew up with him. They had sleepovers at his house. They, did, they went to Jesus' birthday parties. They didn't know it was Christmas, but, you know, they went to his birthday parties. Like, they were very familiar with Jesus. Too familiar with Jesus. You see, familiarity breeds contempt. For some of you, you've grown up in the church you are very familiar with Jesus, but you still haven't put your faith in Jesus. But you grew up in the church, and now you have a family, and you bring your family to church because it's what you do. You're very familiar with the things of Jesus. You like the airplane that can't land, and so it just hovers in the air, 30,000 feet, circling around the airport. You have continued to circle around the airport, but you haven't landed your faith in Jesus yet? Listen, they were very familiar with who Jesus is. They were so familiar with Jesus that he was nobody special to them. That's a dangerous place to be. It's a scary place for the Christian. Listen, church, if you've put your faith in Jesus, do not let your relationship with Jesus become something where he's nobody special. May we not become comfortable with he who is holy and sacred. You see, faith is more than just knowing in your head. That's a part of it, but it's more than just this. It's more than just knowing about the stories and the teachings and the miracles. It's more than just knowing uh, some, some stuff about him and thinking that he was some good moral teacher. It's more than that. Faith has something to do with my heart. Faith is recognizing, listen, I am sinful and broken. I'm in desperate need of a Savior, and the only Savior that covers my sin is he who died on the cross and rose again three days later is Jesus Christ. Faith is more than just knowing in my head. It's more than just being familiar or confident or reading, but nothing happening in a heart change. Another reason people don't believe in Jesus is they say, no one, no one is going to tell me how I'm going to live or think. Verse 25, Jesus is speaking, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three, and a, three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman to a woman who was a widow. And there are many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, 
and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up, drove him out of the town, brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Like, look at what has happened in this synagogue. It went from going, ooh, our Messiah is here. Hold on, isn't that Joseph's son too? Let's kill him. Like, what a drastic change. It went from excitement to questioning to let me kill him. They have this amazing anger that wells up inside. And the anger all starts out from, you're not going to tell us how to think or how to live. You see, Jesus is preaching about this kingdom of God. And here's what he's saying. If Jesus is king, he has come down. He has began the process of setting everything wrong in our world right. He has set our relationship right with God. For those that put our faith in Jesus, he sets our relationship with God from wrong to right. And one day he will return, restoring everything that is wrong in our world right. But there's a problem when it comes to a kingdom. In a kingdom, there's only one king. So for us, for you, for me, we have to make the decision, who's king of my life? Is it me or is it Jesus? You see, if Jesus is king of my life, then Jesus dictates how I think and how I live. If Jesus is king of my life, he determines those things. If I'm king of my life, I get to determine how I think and how I live. But if Jesus is king of my life, then Jesus dictates who I love because I love who Jesus loves. That's everyone. I hate what Jesus hates, whether that's a sin in my life or evilness I find in the world. You see these stories of Elijah and Elisha? These are stories the Jewish people didn't want to be reminded of. It's why they got so angry. Because here's what happens. That story with Elijah, for three and a half years, God caused a drought to happen on the land because the Jewish people turned their back on God and started to worship these false gods. So he causes a drought. And by Jewish law, the widows in Israel were actually supposed to be taken care of by the people. But more than likely, that's not happening. Why? Because there's a three and a half year drought. There's a famine happening in the land. So either out of self-preservation, they decided not to take care of the widows, or they literally could not take care of the widows because it's a drought and a famine for three and a half years. And God doesn't send Elijah to one of their people. He sends it to this widow in Zarephath, the land of Sidon. Why is that significant? The evil queen Jezebel that brought in her false gods that has caused the reason why they're in a three and a half year drought, that's her hometown. So not only does God send Elijah to a Gentile woman, he sends it to a woman from the place where the evil queen is actually from. With Elisha, oh, there's lepers around, and there's lepers in the nation of Israel, but he sends it to another Gentile dude. What's the problem here? Jews hate Gentiles. Gentiles hated the Jews. So why did the Jewish people get all upset and want to kill Jesus? Because Jesus is saying, listen, uh, God will save a Gentile person who recognizes the spiritual depravity, their brokenness, and their sin, how that causes separation from God, and will acknowledge and put their faith and belief in the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross, rose again from the grave, and he's the only one that offers salvation, and it's through him that I, I get salvation, that for, I get forgiveness of sins. Oh, he'll save a Gentile woman before he'll save a Jew who won't admit those things. And they're upset. You see, there's an implication. If you want to be saved, you have to make king, Jesus king of your life. These people get angry. There's pride in that, right? I want to do my life my way. How I want to think, how I want to live, that's up to me. I want to do it that way. That's a pride thing. There's this struggle for many Christians. Is this whole king thing. Listen, it's something that actually unites 
non-Christians and Christians or non-believer and believers, there's one thing that unites us is the fact that we all struggle with who's king of my life. Let me explain. If you're a non-Christian, you're still king of your life, okay? For the Christian, we still struggle with things like love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus asked, what's the greatest command in all of Scripture? Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, with everything you got. Second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. And we respond with, can you define neighbor? Because if you're just talking about homeboy that lives next door to me, that's one person. I, I, I love him. Cool. Okay, everybody on my block, there's some iffy folks, but I mean, I, I, can, I can make some effort. Everybody in my century, city, the country, the world, yeah, I don't want to love a lot of those people. Now I've got to love people who don't think the way I think, who don't live the way I live, who don't have the same morals that I have, the same beliefs that I have, and now I'm supposed to love them? Yeah, I don't know about that one. So let's define neighbor. Can we bring it into smaller terms? What about this one? Love and pray for your enemies. No. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't have too many prayers where I pray for terrorists. But if Jesus is king of my life, then I'm supposed to love who he loves, which means he loves the terrorist. So I should love and pray for them. Listen, I can hate terrorism, but hating the individual, the terrorist, don't know if that's an actual command. I find myself like Jonah. Lots of people know the story of Jonah and the whale. But why does Jonah end up in the whale? Because God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, no. Runs the other way, ends up in the whale, in the belly of a fish for like three days, out of the blow, the whole spout thing. Jonah gets shot out, lands on the water of the sand. Fine, I'll go to, go to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh. Jonah preaches repentance, and they repent. And God saves the people. And then you get Jonah chapter 4, and Jonah's mad. He says, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. You knew how wicked they were. You knew how evil of a people you were. You knew the brutality that they put on other people. You knew how they tortured and killed other people. You knew about them. And I didn't want to go and tell them to repent because I knew if they repented, God, I knew the character of you. I knew you were a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness and that you would save them. So I didn't want to tell them because I didn't want you to save them. God, I wanted you to kill them. I wanted you to come down with wrath and judgment. I knew who you were, and I knew if they repented, you would forgive them. Oh, yeah, I don't want to love my enemies like that. God, I want all the grace and forgiveness you can give me, but for them, I don't want you to do it. Or when it comes to everything else, if Jesus is king of my life, then he dictates how I do relationships and marriage and family, finances, my job, oh, he dictates all of it. My sexuality, he, he, he has a say, the only say in all of it. There's this quote, I don't know who it came from. If I did, I'd give him credit. But it says, we often hate the people God loves, and we often love to do the things God hates. The Jews in the synagogue hated the Gentiles, and the Gentiles hated the Jews, and they were upset. You see, the problem for some people is they can't control God. God's uncontrollable. God doesn't act like he's in my debt. And look at what happens in, verse four, or in Luke 4. They do the right things. 
And then Jesus comes in and says this stuff, and now Jesus doesn't fit their mold. They can't control Jesus. That's why they get angry. Listen, there's two different ways we try to control God. One is we just don't, don't put our faith in God and put our faith in Jesus, so we continue to be king of our own life, and we continue to be God. That's how I try to control God. I'll be God myself. The other way is I will be obedient so I get what I want. Let me explain. I'll go to church, and I serve, and I tithe, and uh, I read my scriptures, and I pray, and I go to life group, and I volunteer, and I do this, and I do that. Why? Because then I got God right where I want him. Because if I got God right where I want him, not only does God have to answer my prayers, he has to answer my prayers the way I want him to answer my prayers. You see, for some people, they they don't believe in Jesus because they don't want to be told how to live or how to think. For others, they don't believe in Jesus because they can't tell Jesus how to live or think problem for them. Tim Keller says this. He says, Jesus is saying, I came and saved the world through an utter loss of power. Therefore, you can only receive my salvation by giving up all claim, by being spiritually poor, by giving up all power, by surrendering. Then you'll find for the rest of your life, you'll be so filled with my love and acceptance that you can just basically give away the rest of your life and see people change through continually giving up your rights for other people, by continually giving up your money for other people, by continually not lording it over, but by becoming a servant. Here's what Jesus is saying. To be saved, you have to make him king. Here's the last thing. Some people don't believe in Jesus because they say, I've never heard. No one's ever told me. Verse 42, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Jesus' purpose was addressed as two things. One, the content of the gospel the death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus, but it also addresses the scope of the gospel. This is the impact that the good news should make on issues of biblical justice. You see, the gospel saves us from hell, but it also saves us for making a kingdom impact. This is why we have campuses. For those of you that don't know, this is not our only location. We all, a few months ago, launched a campus in uh, Carson. We're working on, hopefully this year, working on launching a campus in Sparks. And, uh, woohoo. <laughs> But here's the thing. The reason we have campuses, it was always part of God's vision for Life Church from the very beginning. It's always part of the vision that we would have multiple campuses. And here's why. Same thing Jesus says. I have to go to more towns and go tell more people. We just believe we got to go to other parts of our city to reach more people. We are still one of the least church cities in America. We recognize that God has been gracious, kind to us. We've been extremely, extremely blessed, but we're not going to sit here and hope more people show up. That we're actually going to go out to them. Why? Because the Great Commission says, go and make disciples. Not hopefully they show up and then you can make disciples. No, it tells us to go. So we're going to go, and that's why we have campuses. Why? Because there's broken, hurt, lost people. Why? And so captives would be set free. The lost would be found. Outcasts and lonely would find a home. Unloved would find perfect love. Hurt and bur- heavy burden would find peace. Orphan would find family. That every person that says, hey, I've never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, let me give you the opportunity to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so people could come back and be sons and daughters of God the Father, ushered into the family of Jesus. It's where you go from being a sinner to righteous because Jesus took my sin and then I get to share in his righteousness. Why we do this? In Isaiah 61, if you read Isaiah 61 compared to what Jesus says in Luke 4, 
you will realize in Luke 4.19, there's a period. In Isaiah 61, Jesus stopped mid-sentence. And here's what Jesus does. He leaves out this phrase, the day of vengeance of our God. The Jewish people had been waiting for generations for God to rain his vengeance down on all the people that would go against Israel. They've been waiting for the day of vengeance. And yet Jesus will open up the scroll, go down to Isaiah 61, and he will read and put a period before the day of vengeance of God. Why? Why did he stop? Here's what Tim Keller says. Jesus is saying, I'm not bringing that vengeance, not at this coming. At this coming, I've come to take vengeance, not bring it. At this coming, I've come to receive judgment, not to send it. I've come not with a sword in my hand, but with nails in my hands. Here's what Jesus is saying. He leaves out the vengeance of God because the vengeance, the judgment, the wrath, was not the point of his first coming. He came to take all of it, not put it on anybody else. So for those of you that say, man, I've never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or maybe you've grown up in church your whole life, maybe this is the first time that it's actually clicking for you, let me just explain. The gospel of Jesus is two things. It is both simple and it's extremely complicated. Here's why it's simple. It's simple because Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, sinless life, never did anything wrong, went to the cross, died on the cross, taking sin, your sin and my sin, taking it on himself. Because Romans tells us that the wages of sin is death, he died on the cross for us. His broken body and his blood that's shed covered sin. Three days later, he rose from the grave, defeating sin in the grave. So when he says, I doesn't come with a sword, but I came with nails in my hands, see, the sword is to fight the battle. He came with nails in his hands and already won the battle. Rose again three days later. Now sits out at the right hand of God the Father. That every time that I do something wrong, every time I screw up and every time I ask for forgiveness, instead of receiving vengeance and judgment from God, there's Jesus standing next to the Father, Say, my blood covers him. I paid for that one. The gospel is also extremely complicated. Let me explain. It seems too good to be true. He does. It's hard to wrap your mind around that there is a love out there, a person who loves you so much that they would let their son die for you. I don't know another parent ever who would let their kid die for somebody else complicated. It's also complicated because you have to make a decision who's king over your life, you or him. And that's a hard thing to make because we have this big Christianese word called salvation process, sanctification process. It's tough. You give your life to Jesus at this moment, but then you have to walk out this sanctification process. And in 5, 10, 20, 50 years, there's things that you thought you let Jesus be king over your life. And then you realize, no, he wasn't like a chessboard and you tricked him, you, you gave Jesus a pawn instead of the king. It's complicated. It's also complicated because what does it mean that Jesus died for my sins? What do you mean that my sins were transferred to him? What are, what are you talking about? Let me explain that one. 
there's this moment where Jesus is on the cross in front of everybody. And he says this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time in scripture he doesn't call the God, God the Father, Abba, which is, means Father. It's the only time. What happens in that moment? Well, scripture tells us that holy God cannot be joined with sin. And so Jesus on the cross takes our sin and when he takes our sin, holy God, God the Father, could not look at his son. So scripture tells us God the Father turns his face away from his son because in that moment, his son took your sin and my sin. And so he turned his face. And scripture is very clear. Our sin causes a wall between us and God. It causes a chasm between us and God. It causes a veil between us and God. And so Jesus in that moment takes my sin, takes your sin. God the Father turns his face away from his son. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in his death and his resurrection, that wall is torn, that chasm is filled, that veil is torn down. Why? So now when God the Father looks down at you and me, he doesn't look down and is joined with sin. He looks down and sees righteousness because his holy righteous son took my sin and paid for that price. So now it's God the Father turned his, son, his face away from God the Son so that his face can shine on you. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to understand. It's complicated. But it's absolutely beautiful. It's absolutely true. For some of you, You've never put your faith in Jesus, and I'm going to give you that opportunity. Let me explain what the doctrine of grace is. It's a gift, freely given. The doctrine of grace says you are saved by losing power. I mean, you stop being king and you give your power and give Jesus power to be king over your life. You are saved by losing power by a Jesus who gave up power to save you. Let's pray. I believe for some of you, maybe this is your first time or maybe it's the 10,000th time you've heard the gospel, but you still never made that decision for yourself to put your faith in Jesus. And I believe for some of you, maybe today is that day for you, and that is that moment. And so I'm going to have an opportunity. If you want to make the decision to surrender your life, to stop being king and give up your kingship to Jesus and let him be king over your life, you want to place your faith in the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, you can do something like this. You can pray it out loud. You can pray this in your heart. But pray something like this. Father, I know I'm a sinner. And I know my sin separates from me from you. I know that the punishment for sin is death. But I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again three days later that his sacrifice was payment for my sins. And today I want to put my faith, my belief in the work of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And so Father, I ask that you come and live inside of me in the person of your Holy Spirit. I no longer want to be king. I ask that you would take the wheel, that you would be king of my life, that you would help me follow you and be obedient to you for the rest of my life. Now, with your eyes still closed, if there's anybody in here who prayed that and today for the first time actually meant it, I'm asked that you just do one thing. Just look up at me, maybe raise your hand so I can point you out. I just want to pray for you. But if anybody prayed that today for the first time and meant it, just look up at me and raise your hand. I see you guys over there, over there. 
See you guys back there. Amen. Anybody else? See you right here, my man. See you. Praise God. Anybody else over here on my right? I see you there. Father, I see the hands, but Lord, you see the hearts. Lord, we glorify, bring you honor. Worship you. Because you are a God who changes hearts and souls. And Lord, together we thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. The one who died on the cross for me. What an amazing love, an amazing grace. That is. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, listen, for those of you that made that decision today, first thing, let me tell you, um, the next step after you make a decision to follow Jesus is going public. It's telling people. You do that through baptism. Next Sunday, we have baptisms here at Life Church. We would love to celebrate with you. Now, I know that's probably a big step. I just wanted to let you know what's happening. We would love to celebrate you, with you. Here's the next thing. Hey, welcome to the family. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this. And you can also find more information at lifechurchreno.com. Blessings to you.